I'm Dr. Molly Ness, host of the End Book Deserts podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is partnering with the John Maxwell Company to bring interviews like Episode 402 with Jason Stoughton and Episode 403 with Jeff Henderson. And also to make you aware of the awesome leadership event called Live to Lead coming October 8th, 2021 to Atlanta, Georgia. Go to L2LATL.com for more information. And when you go to check out, use the code K12, get a special discount. See you there. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Richard Rusick. Richard is the founder and CEO of Art of Problem Solving Incorporated and co-author of the Art of Problem Solving textbooks. Richard's focus is on building the next generation of problem solvers through advanced online math. What an awesome conversation. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Oh, oh by, by the way, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and rated and reviewed the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are Establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com, slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, Steve here, and my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use, and my Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well... Use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators. Helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Richard Resick is the founder and CEO of Art of Problem Solving, AOPS Incorporated. He's also a co-author of the Art of Problem Solving textbooks. Richard was a National Math Counts participant in 1985, and he won the USA Math Olympiad, USAMO, in 1989. He is one of the co-creators of the Mandelbrot competition and the director of the USA Mathematical Talent Search or USAMTS. He also founded the San Diego Math Circle. Every month, Rusick works on the Math Counts website to create Math Counts minis where he explains problems and concepts. Richard studied chemical engineering at Princeton University and graduated in 1993. He served on the board for ARML, which is American Regions Mathematics League, and managed the Western ARML site at one point. Richard, it's so cool to have you on. Thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hi, great. Uh, wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And man, you got some cool math background. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been spending a lot of time uh, fighting with some hard problems. Which is really cool and, and part of what we're going to be talking about today. So good stuff. I, I enjoyed spending uh, time learning all about uh, uh, the art of problem solving, your website, and all the cool stuff you got going on. So let's, let's talk about it a little bit. But before we do that... Um, Let's talk about you. Where, where'd your interest or focus on math come from? Oh, I got started. I mean, my, my parents, my mom was a first grade teacher. My dad was a nuclear engineer. So oh. over time, I've kind of put those interests together a little bit. But uh, when, I was, when I was very young, I, I loved to read. And just, you know, my house was full of books and I read a whole lot of books. And then in middle school, uh, I discovered math competitions. Or I, I should say my mom discovered math competitions and uh, went up to the school and said, hey, I'd like to... Uh, I'd like to get my son involved in this. I think he'd really like it. And she was right. That the first math competition was Math Counts, as you've already mentioned there, which really was uh, a launching point for me. It showed me that there was all this beautiful, amazing math that I wasn't seeing in school. 
It showed me that there were problems that I couldn't solve, which was a little unsettling at first, but really, really inspiring. And it also showed me that there were a whole lot of kids out there like me who, who really enjoyed a lot of the same sort of things I, I did. And it also showed me that there were a lot of adults out there who were not uh, required by their profession or by their relations. They weren't my teachers or my parents who were excited about the fact that I was excited about this. And I had never seen that before. I had only seen parents excited about basketball or <laughs> football or whatever the, the sport um, of the season may be. That's so cool. Cause that's, I, right now I got, I got my wife and two sons who was just uh, love to have met you, you know, <laughs> a while back ago. So uh, I got uh, both my sons are engineers and, uh, and my wife uh, has a master's in stats and a bachelor's in math. And she just, she loves to do math just for sake of it's there. So I did it. That's why. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, the uh, National Society of Professional Engineers um, launched Math Count. So they'd be very happy to hear about your sons. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah, they, they, uh, it's good stuff. They love, love it. And that's why I, you know, I, I saw this stuff you were doing. I'm like, this is cool. I need to have my sons on this <laughs> with me. Um, good stuff. So, it, you know, Richard, in your bio, I read he is one of the co creators of the Mandelbrot competition. What is it? So that was a competition I started uh, after my first year of college when I was in high school. And this is going back quite a ways. Um, there were a lot of math competitions. There were uh, one flavor of these competitions were mailing competitions. So you, competitions would get sent to the school. You do the problems. You'd send them. You'd send them back in. Now, most of these most of these mailing competitions were structured as kind of classroom activities. So they were they were designed for a very broad audience of students. Um, but as I got really into math competitions, uh, I would start to encounter these really advanced problems in, in um, more advanced competitions, as well as competitions that required us to actually write out full solutions to prepare proofs. So uh, a couple of my friends and I decided to try to create something like that, these experience of these really advanced competitions, but deliver it in this kind of mail-in format. So we came up with this, the idea of the Mandelbrot competition. Now, um, the first thing we had to do, of course, was secure the permission to use that name because um, uh, that's the name of a mathematician and uh, that, who was kind of one of the founders of fractal theory, chaos mathematics. So uh, I did what you could do back in what was it, 1990. I actually went to a payphone and called information, got his phone number and called him at home. Talk to his wife, talk to him. You can't do that now, but you could do it then. He was, uh, they were both very pleasant and very bewildered that this 19 year old kid was calling asking to use their name for a math competition, but they very graciously said yes. So that's, that's how we started the competition. That's awesome. That's, yeah, you're right. That's, I mean, today you might have to worry that they're worried that you're stalking them or something. The, uh, <laughs> that's so cool. And what's funny too is that uh, for all of you out there who don't know that one time we had phone booths, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I gave this story to the, the, the crew here at Art of Problem Solving. Um, just this was just last week. I was giving the company history to all the new people and I had to explain to them what quarters were. <laughs> you know, these little nice. round discs and you put them inside this machine that had a phone attached. You didn't carry phones with you everywhere. That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, didn't have the phones attached to the concrete or the asphalt. And, yeah, you got to make it work for you. <laughs> Boy, you guys are ancient, right? <laughs> I like that. That's good stuff. <laughs> um, that's so cool, though, that you actually called them. I thought you were going to tell me that, uh, you know, you, you wrote a series of letters and all kinds of stuff. Nope. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. That's, you know, all right. So I got to ask you, so I'm with you, I'm with them on this. So as a 19 year old that you actually called, not only you looked up, you had to pursue this and call. I mean, what, what kind of pushed you to do that or inspired you to do that? I mean, there wasn't any thought that we wouldn't in, in a sense, like, it's just like, oh, you know, we, well, we need to get, this is a great name. It's got a beautiful image. Uh, well, we, we should ask permission. Uh, so how are we going to get that? Well, I'm not going to, I think he was at Yale at the time. I'm not going to drive up to Yale. Um, let's just give him a call and see if that'll work. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. And it was one of those rare times where the first thing we tried actually worked. That's <laughs> that too cool. doesn't happen. Yeah, no, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. I, I, could you tell us about the art of problem solving books? Cause you know, you create these books also. So let's talk about those. So I think that came out of the competition in a way. So we, we launched this competition uh, after my first year of college. And uh, over the first two years, the, we saw that the scores were really, really low. 
And that was because we assumed that all the students knew the same math we did, which is an entirely unfair thing to do because we were, you know, two, three, four years older than the students. So we were confronted with a bit of a puzzle. We could either make the tests a lot easier or we could try to teach the kids. And we chose the latter route. Uh, one day I was walking down the street with one of my um, one of my partners on the, the competition and he turned to me and he said, Richard, we should write a book. And my answer was, I've got 200 handwritten pages of notes. I don't know how to turn them into a book. And he said, well, I'll figure that out. And then we will get together. And the one book became two books. And so we started writing a, a pair of books that were for kids who were really interested in math competitions. And then uh, as we were starting to get close to, to finishing those books, I went up to the Princeton University Press, to the publisher there. And we went in there, talked to this really nice guy, told him what we were doing. We were really excited about these books. And that guy, he was very nice and he very patiently explained to us that, you know, you guys have much better connections with your market than we do. So you might be really better off publishing the books yourselves. Now, I realize now what he was saying. He was saying, hey, nobody going to buy a math book written by a 21 year old. That's not going to happen. But that's not what I heard, of course. So uh, Shandor and I, we went off and we self-published the books. And it turned out what he said was actually right. We actually did have some pretty good connections into into the market of uh, the various competitions because we were both alumni of, of all of these programs. That's that's so cool. I like I like the way you said that, though. It's not what I heard. I heard it. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Very cool. That's, well, it's a good thing that uh, you heard whatever you heard and pursued your route because uh, it turned into it's it's gone on to keep producing. I get I guess. Yeah. The best way so, yeah so we started off with those with those textbooks. And then as I came out of college, I went into grad school in chemical engineering that lasted eight weeks. Um, because I, I realized two things. First of all, I was not going to make it all the way through grad school. I didn't have the patience and the dedication, or, or, or I'd say the, I, I mean, I obviously have a lot of dedication, but not the dedication maybe to chemical engineering. But in order to be really successful in research, you needed a, a certain slice, a certain type of patience uh, that I knew I didn't have. So I was not going to be a research engineer. So why stay in grad school for another five or six years? The other reason I left is in preparing these books, I had decided education is really where I want to be. I wanted to be a teacher. So I went off and taught high school for the second semester of that of that first year that I was supposed to be in grad school. I dropped out of grad school, went and taught high school. And that's where I learned teaching high school is really, really hard. (laughs) So hard. I was 22 at the time. And well, you can see me now. I'm Let's say I'm not 22 anymore. I'm 49. <laughs> so you can imagine what I looked like when I was 22. Discipline was very difficult. And I also had a very difficult time reaching the students who had maybe already tapped out of, of learning math. The students who were really excited about math and excited about learning what I was there to teach, um, whether I was in an honors class or in a remedial class, it didn't matter. You know, there were students like that in all of these classes. Those students I felt I could really speak to and really help and really reach the other students, um, I was not equipped to do that when I was 22. So uh, I got sidetracked, left teaching. I traded bonds for four years. And then I left that because I wanted to build something. I just didn't know what it was. Um, a few years after that, well, the internet had come along. And with the internet, I saw, hey, wait a second. Maybe maybe we can build a school online and put up a sign that says, we're going to do some really challenging math here. You know, if you're looking for something more than you're getting out of the kind of baseline curriculum, which is focused on mathematical literacy, not mastery, if you want something more than that, that's what we do here. And that that really worked. We used the original books that we'd written in college, um, used those as a way to capture our initial audience and then just built from there. We started with an online school and we started with an online community, which is super, super important whenever you're trying to inspire uh, the, the next generation of, of masters in anything is to get them together because they will feed off each other. Um, we started with an online school. We started with a community. Then we started building out. We built out a full line of textbooks, kept building out the online school, moved down in elementary school, which I, I think we'll talk about a little bit more later, and then spread out into some on-the-ground learning centers. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot a lot packed in there. That's awesome. It's, it's so cool. And I, what I love is your energy and excitement about it. Which is, uh, you know, it, it is cool as a former um, seeing my own, you know, my sons with uh, their background and, uh, you know, but also as a high, former high school, I'm a 
former high school history teacher and then a, a um, administrator and eventually principal and so forth. And and uh, you always see that same sort of thing that you just described, which is it's it's contagious. If you bring them around people who have those same sorts of thoughts and or excited about it, then it just builds and you, you see cool stuff happen as a result of that uh, um, kind of, you know, if it was a cartoon, there'd be smoke coming out, you know, it's like, <laughs> which is awesome. So, uh, you know, on the front page of the Art of Problem Solving main page of the website, um, this is noted, building the next generation of problem solvers through advanced online math. And you've started going into that. So let's, you know, let's talk about what's the purpose of Art of Problem Solving? So I, I, about 20 years ago, I went to the National Math Counts competition and we talked about math, math counts a little bit uh, earlier. Math counts is possibly one of the most, maybe the most important um, extracurricular program for identifying and inspiring students who are going to be great problem solvers. It's where I got my start as a student more than 20 years ago and where a lot of the top students really get their start and kind of branching out and, and going much, much deeper into mathematical problem solving. Uh, I was talking with one of the board members there, I think it was Bruce Lawson, and I asked him why, why he got involved with math counts. And he said, well, one of these days, the world's just gonna fall apart. And it's these kids right here who are going to have to put it back together. Nice. <laughs> and you know, it's, I mean, I don't wanna say the math contest winners are the only ones you're gonna wanna grab and, and go put the world together, but uh, that's one of the first places you're gonna look for the, the really strong problem solvers that are gonna have to handle things like, you know, the next pandemic that comes along. And that really resonated with me. And it kind of informs a lot of what we do at Art of Problem Solving, which is discover, inspire, and train the great problem solvers of the next generation. That's very cool. That's very cool. It's, you know, it's the, you know, it's funny. I, I recently, uh, I, I've talked with a friend recently who um, is an engineer of, um, in a couple of different fields. And he was talking about uh, uh, people who do, uh, things for just the sake of doing it. And so research kind of getting back to something you're talking about earlier. And you really, you nearly need people who do that, who that, cause they, they go after a problem just because, you know, kind of like the person, why'd you climb the mountain? Because it was there, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's so much what you want to, you want to encourage that in students. Which is just so awesome. Cause there's nothing better than experiencing when, especially when a lot of times adults get this thought that, you know, if it's a group of teenagers, there's got to be trouble brewing, right? <laughs> and, and if they're getting a little excited, there's got to be trouble brewing. And then you go up to that group and you find out they're, uh, they're contemplating something that if you change it this way in this formula, maybe it would work this way or differently or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It might be trouble, but it's, it's, hopefully it's going to be some good trouble. <laughs> exactly. That's a good type of trouble there. So, so let's talk about, uh, you've got a couple of things that I got to make sure that we mention here. Because first of all, I just love the title. We got the Beast Academy. So we got to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about another one you got. All right. So Beast Academy, that's our elementary school. Uh, that's our elementary school curriculum, which right now is primarily math, although we're starting to expand into other subjects. And uh, the way that started was we, we decided we wanted to build an elementary school curriculum. We started with middle and high school because that's what we kind of we understood best. And when we, as we were finishing that, we were like, okay, we want to find more students to work with. And we could either start doing a whole lot of marketing, which, you know, we were a bunch of, we were a very small company at that point, very, uh, let's say math people heavy and very afraid of marketing. <laughs> or we could try to build more students who are interested in doing what we were doing. And we chose, we chose that latter route. And since then, I've come to think of it not as building more students who are interested in what we're doing, but retaining them. Because I think most kids are problem solvers. You know, you watch them, the kids, when they're four, they're way tougher than we are. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that, right? Like you, kids are always crying and everything. But you look at what a four-year-old does, you know, the way they have to encounter the world. They see all these people doing these really amazing things like riding a bicycle or chopping vegetables or shooting a basketball and they want to do it too, but they can't because they're four, but they're going to try anyway, right? They're going to try it. They're going to try to do it. They're going to try to do it. And they're going to fail because well, they're still four and then they're going to cry. They're going to pitch a fit. They're going to, they're going to throw a tantrum and then they're going to quit and run off. But then an amazing thing happens in about 10 minutes, they'll come back and they'll try again because they're four and they haven't learned yet how to quit for good. And that's the thing that we want to retain in kids because it's, that's the natural state of kids, natural state when they're little, they can't do anything. So everything is hard. And what we do in, in math class, particularly through elementary school is we train them to expect it to be, you know, they, they don't 
habit. They're not doing it right until it's easy, until they can get it right every single time. And that is exactly the wrong thing we want to do with kids. We want them to retain that sort of resilience that, that I want to seek out the challenge because that thing that you can do right every single time, we have machines for that now. You know, it used to be you could train people intellectually to do it right every single time and they'd have a great career ahead of them, a very important career. It's not true anymore because all of those careers are going to be done by the machines. So this is what we're trying to do with Beast Academy is trying to retain that sort of that love of challenge, that love of exploration, that love of discovery by keeping that within the curriculum, not just treating it as here's some arithmetic, a bunch of rules you need to master and move on to the next thing. One of the ways we do this is we use puzzles, mathematical puzzles. Uh, we have on our on our team here, we have a couple of the members of the U.S. puzzle team, one of whom was uh, a world champion. And as good as they are at solving puzzles, they're even better at writing them. So we create these puzzles that um, do a couple things at the same time. The, the first is, you know, you do have to get the reps in. You've got to practice to master the fundamental skills. You know, you've, you've got to know something. And you know this as a history teacher, you know, it's – History isn't just about all the facts, but you do need to have the facts to really be able to analyze and appreciate history. And math is the same way. You do need those fundamentals. Um, so, you know, you got to get the reps in, but we're getting the reps in while they're working on these puzzles. So they don't even notice they're getting the reps in because they're focused on solving the puzzle. And it's during solving the puzzle that they're getting these really critical problem solving skills, more important than the math facts, the ability to look at a confusing situation and say, all right, where do I start? This is, this is a really human problem. Machines can't do this, right? Machines can't do the where do I start thing anymore, or not yet. Once the machines can do that, they're going to replace us in everything. But the where do I start, that's the human problem. So that the kids have to solve that and try to figure out what's the first thing. Where do I start on this weird puzzle? Then once they find one thing in the puzzle, okay, what does this tell me? What can I do with this new thing and combine it with the old information? What's the next step? another human problem. So these kind of higher order problem solving skills, these are the real, the really important, the most important things we're teaching because these we can pick up and put them in other places. We can use them in science. We can use them in economics and philosophy, anywhere we want to go with these sort of problem solving skills, we can take them into other spaces. That's so cool. That's so cool. So what, where do your, the, the kids who do the Vista Academy, where do they come from? They come from all over. Uh, they, they come from all over. So the Beast Academy materials we have right now, we have two sets of materials. We have um, t uh, books. I should back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about the books because we spent a few months trying to figure out how, like, how do you want to communicate these things to kids? You're not in the room with them. What's the right structure for a book? Uh, and we'd have meetings over and over and over again, kicking around ideas. And in one meeting, in the span of five minutes, one person said, um, comic books and another person said monsters and we were set like this is what we're doing um, so we use comic books as our textbooks and that is for a few reasons I mean one obviously they're fun the kids can engage with them um, but there's some pedagogical some important pedagogical things going on in this medium this medium allows first of all allows a much richer uh, visual thinking visual expression and there are a lot of ideas and that can be expressed better with pictures than with words. There are a lot of kids and a lot of people that think better in pictures than in words. So now we get to use both. We get to use pictures and words. But the other thing you get to do here is um, we get to have a conversation. And if you've ever tried to lecture third graders, you know, <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't work at all. You need a discourse of some sort. But all we have is a book. And traditionally, a book is a lecture. But a comic book is a conversation because you have a room. The kids are talking to each other in the comic books and the kids will emotionally put themselves inside the books and they'll join the conversation. And in these conversations, you get to model discovery. You get to model struggle. You get to model uh, disagreement. You get to model uh, being wrong and recovering from that and then finding, finding a better path. You get to model uh, collaboration. Like there's a lot of things you can do in this medium is very difficult to do in, in a textbook, but that the great teachers are doing in their classrooms. So this is this is why we use that as a model. Um, and then we also have practice books, which look you know you, you got to do the practice, got to get the reps in. Looks basically like a like a workbook, but with uh, problems that are maybe unlike what you might typically see, which is something we sometimes hear from parents. They're like, "This doesn't look anything like my math class," and I sure wish my math class had looked more like this. Nice. Um, so we get to teach parents as well. 
Then we also have an online learning system where the, the students, there's an online version of the, of the guidebooks. There's lots of different practice, you know, different sorts of interactivity that the kids can do to, to hone their skills. Um, lots of puzzles and then videos, which is mostly many, many, many hours of me talking about math. And as you can hear, I kind of like to talk about math. <laughs> it's good stuff. Good stuff. I love that. The, uh, so that, that, that's awesome. So that's the Beast Academy. Now you also have the AOPS Academy. So art of problem solving. Can you let's let's go into yeah. that. Yeah. So after you know, we, we started off with an online school for middle and high school, and, and that's that's still going strong. We'll have about um, 30,000, 35,000 enrollments this year in our online school. So after doing that for a number of years, um, we, we had someone approach us who was running a, a learning center using our books. So he'd taken our books and he built classes around them and was teaching. Um, this was in North Carolina. And he reached out to us and said, hey, um, we, I've got 400 students here who are using your materials. Do you want to come see them? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I really want to see this. Um, so we went out there. I'm like, I, I was, you know, you hear about learning centers and you hear about the kind of stereotypical thing you might hear of in, in some other countries where the kids, you know, they go to school and then they go to the learning center and stay there until nine o'clock at night and are studying all the time. So I was wondering if this is what I would see when I went there. And so we go there and we see these kids who are just, they're just lit up. They're around other kids who are excited about learning that um, they, they like the same books. They, you know, they, they're doing the Rubik's cube way faster than I ever will in my entire life. Uh, they are building a culture. They're building the culture that they want to be part of. And it's the culture that they're going to be part of in the professional world. They just don't know that it exists out there yet. But I see that in these kids and it was really hammered home uh, at the end of the, the couple of days I was there. And they, I was in a room with maybe a hundred of the parents and students and I talk for a little bit and then we open it to questions. Now, normally when we open it to questions, I get bombarded with questions from the parents. That didn't happen at all this time. The kids were not going to let their parents talk. It was the kids that were asking questions. And that really hammered at home for me. I'm like, these kids are dialed in. This is where they want to be. So we then took that model and started spreading it around the country. This, this We've got 10 learning centers now that we can reach a different set of kids in person uh, than we do online because this is one of the things that, that has, I guess, been more of a surprise to me than it should have been. Your, your fellow educators will be like, why didn't you know this sooner? Which is different kids learn in very different ways. Some kids are extremely social. They need to be in a room with their teacher, with other kids in order to be really inspired and, and to, to keep on going, to keep on struggling. Whereas other kids don't want that at all. <laughs> they want to be in a room with a book alone. That was me. Or they're very happy online where they can communicate, but no one can see them. So that's, that's the way one of our online schools works is it's not video, it's not audio, it's all typing. And there's a certain set of kids for whom that is the right way to learn. Um, so this is one of the things that we've done very deliberately is deliver our materials in a lot of different lanes. AOPS Academy allowed us to deliver in person. And then during the pandemic, we've had to go online and we've had to learn uh, about teaching with video and audio. So we have two online schools now, one that's not video and audio and one that is. And again, two very different sets of students. That's very cool, especially by by addressing that. I mean, you really give play then to that because I'm I'm the type of student who I want the teacher and the other kids in the room, uh, at least if they're focused, you know, <laughs> and um, and I and I want to have those conversations. I mean, it, you know, if you pop up into college, that's and that's where I thrive the most in uh, um, all the way through my doctoral work, especially was, you know, having the ability to bounce those ideas off each other or disagree <laughs> you know, type of thing. And, um, you know, right now there's a bunch of people going, what him disagree with somebody? No. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but, uh, that is so cool. I like that because being able to address those different ways that, uh, um, you know, like, like you said, uh, um, the kid who wants to be with the books without the other people and, uh, or you want to be, um, talking with each other, but without the video, I, I love this. This, this is so cool. So I got to, I just kind of got to insert something here. So, um, as, as we were dealing with the pandemic this, this last year, um, did you guys have to make adjustments as you were addressing what you were doing? <laughs> oh, did we ever, um, 
So, I mean, obviously there's there, so suddenly everybody's working from home, um, except me and the warehouse team. So I get the second floor and the warehouse team is downstairs and they spread all out. So I've got nine, I have 9,000 square foot office now. Nice. I get all the corner, I get all the corner offices. It's great. Nice. It's really not great at all. Um, <laughs> a little lonely. Yeah, had to make a lot of adjustments, just like, just like everyone has, uh, you know, we've had a lot of you know, hearing from parents, you know, we, the number of messages we got in the first two months that just said, help, I don't want to be a homeschooler <laughs> was, was, uh, you know, really reflected the challenges that, um, parents were facing. And then we started hearing from schools because schools, you know, schools had to make a huge adjustment as well. So the schools started coming to us, uh, just looking for tools that would help empower their students at home. Um, and we've had to do a lot of that here. So we've had to learn uh, new communication mechanisms just to work well with each other and new ways to work with the students. The first huge challenge we had was bringing all our learning centers. We had, I don't know, it was maybe seven, 8,000 students. We had to take them all from meeting in person every week to being online in the medium we had never worked in before. You know, granted we're an online education or partly an online education company. I can't, like, we're not fully one. Um, but we couldn't use that delivery mechanism with this group of students um, because that delivery mechanism is more catered towards older students and our learning centers have more younger students. So uh, we had to learn how to deliver this and we had to do it in a week. So wow. we have, fortunately we have engineers, you know, we have resources that school systems maybe don't have. So we were able to do this pretty quickly. We have engineers who can do that an operations team we have a, a curriculum team, so we can just be like, all right, everybody drop everything. We're shutting down these three projects over here. We're delaying those five. And for the next month, we're going to focus on well, in one week we have classes. And then for the next month, we're going to tighten that up and get our operations running. And for the next you know, six months, nine months, we're going to be converting our curriculum to this new delivery mechanism, staying just ahead of our classes. So that's been a challenge. And then just learning how to operate a company um, in a sudden shift uh, in, in the way we work and even the company structure, because we had to, we had to change quite a bit in a, again, in a small amount of time. And this is uh, I think the last 15 months has really highlighted the importance of these problem solving skills that I'm talking about. Cause when I talk about problem solving, uh, what I'm referring to is solving problems you've never seen before. And this is the critical skill that kids need going forward. Cause the world is changing faster and faster. I mean, you know this, you know, since we left, since we graduated from college, probably both of us have used uh, many, many tools and many, many skills that, you know, these things didn't exist when we were in school. So who could teach us those things? We had to learn new things. I mean, certainly podcasting, not a thing in the 80s. You got that <laughs> right. So Wish I'd had it then. <laughs> these things. And that's what we've, you know, my whole crew here has had to do for the last 15 months. And this is what we want to train kids to be able to handle going forward. That's, that's so cool. I, I love this idea because it's, you know, it, it is one of those things, just as a side note, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, we didn't have then that uh, I wish I'd had some of them, some of them I could do without, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, but the, my favorite thing is, you know, my favorite piece of technology right then was, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty fond of my uh, TI-35, I think is what the calculator was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time I, my dad would bring home those, the, the calculator, I'm like, I can play with this for hours. <laughs> and I can't program anything on it, but I'm perfectly happy. I mean, programming wasn't a thing. Perfectly happy to play with it. Good stuff, good stuff. The, uh, okay, let's let's kind of shift and let's talk about some educa education cop. Uh, bleh, let's try that one again. Let's shift and talk about some education topics for a minute, all right? Um, right. So, you know, I've had the good fortune to connect with several representatives from Kitcaster, a podcasting booking agency. They reached out to me on behalf of their clients who want to spread the word about their book, their story, their ideas, their businesses, and so much more. Kitcaster has been such a pleasure to work with, and I always enjoy working with their clients. Now, Kitcaster is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, which is really cool. And, and I got to ask you, have you been wanting to tell your story on podcasts? Podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time to explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. Go to kitcaster.com slash TLLK12 or go to my webpage at stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors. Click on the Kitcaster logo and apply for a special offer for just the friends of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. 
and we kind of started getting into it there, which is kind of cool. I, I, what do you think would happen if we stopped making our students afraid of hard things? Uh, I don't think they are afraid of hard things. We train them to be afraid of hard things. I think that's a learned behavior. And I, I, again, like I haven't, my mom's the first grade teacher. She would know this better than I would, but I, I don't think it's a natural thing for, for little kids to be uh, afraid of hard things because everything is so hard for them. And I think they do kind of learn that over time. And, and part of that, I mean, maybe they're learning it at home, maybe they're learning it in school, maybe it's a little bit of both. Uh, but th- I think that's the first step is to, is to try to prevent it from happening in the first place. Now, uh, if it has already happened and you need to come back and, you know, and, and address that, the place to address it is in something they really care about and something they want to do. That's where, that's where you learn how to overcome adversity is I want to, whatever it is, I want to make the basketball team. I want to play the violin, uh, you know, I want to make a rock band, whatever it is. For me, it was, I want to do well in the math competition. That's where I had to finally really confront something I could not do, but I really wanted to do. Um, and I think those are, those are the things that we, we want. Those are the experiences we want to give kids um, because that is, that's where all the good stuff is, is the ability to overcome adversity. Like when you're, when you're hitting this hard point where you can't do something, you can't do something like this is what learning feels like when it's all coming easily, you're not learning. And this is, this is one of the harder things you, you want to try to impress upon kids is if you're getting it 95% correct, 99% correct, that's a sign that you need to find something harder. You need, you shouldn't be happy. You shouldn't be thrilled. You should be bored. You should be frustrated. And we see a lot of kids like that, right? Like when you see kids acting out in the classroom, sometimes it's because they're, it's there to, you know, this is a teacher. You're like, get that right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they're not interested, but sometimes they're just bored. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to find something else to engage them. I think that's, uh, it would be a huge building moment for the student to make them not afraid of hard things because they're going to be able to realize more of their potential if they can let go of those, of those fears or, or never feel them in the first place. They will never get rid of the frustration, right? Like that, again, that's what learning feels like and that's okay. Getting the kids to appreciate and understand that is, is really, really important because some kids, that's the point they stop. This is painful. And, you know, in any other discipline, we understand this really well. An athlete that trains and stops as soon as they start to get tired, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> they're not going anywhere. The musician who will never do the scales, um, you know, who will, as soon as the, the fingers start to get sore, always stop. They're not, or oh, I just don't want to practice today. Uh, they're not going to get there either. This is, it's the same thing. It's the same thing in any sort of intellectual discipline. That's so cool what you're talking about. Cause I just, I think about the number of things that uh, you're right. I mean, if it's hard, there's some that just stop and say, I'm, I'm done, I'm done. And then there's others who kind of live for that challenge to say, uh, let me, uh, let me figure this out. You know, I was thinking right now, for some reason, you got me thinking about, uh, cause I loved, I loved band. I started in fourth grade and I played trumpet all the way through college and then actually worked for me as a principal. I discovered I could, get to know the kids that way and stuff like that. And I didn't, wasn't just the bad guy, but, uh, what was cool was, uh, I'll never forget trying to learn how that, uh, when the, the music's written away, so that it gets a certain sound, but it doesn't make sense because the, that isn't the way your fingers are ready to do it that way. And, uh, that always caused you a whole bunch of consternation. You had to focus on trying to make that happen. And when you did, you know, you're kind of like, I, for some reason, that feeling is just coming back to me as you were talking about just where you're like, yeah, <laughs> All right. So, yeah, right. The, the hard work. That's that's where all the all the good stuff in is. I, I, I read Robert Caro writing about how he wrote his books. You know, the, the historian, and to just read about how what he did to to build out that the series on Lyndon Johnson or the book he wrote about Robert Moses, and how just insanely difficult and. Like if someone had told me up front, oh, you're going to spend seven years, you're going to have to travel all over the country. You're going to have to go to these dusty libraries. You're going to have to convince people to talk to you who do not want to talk to you. Like the willingness to overcome the obstacles Caro had to overcome to build these amazing books that he wrote. Like that's what you get when you teach kids not to be afraid of hard things is you get greatness at that level. You got that right. You know, it's just, you know, now we're going to go back to something you said earlier. I mean, when you reached out to Man Abroad, I mean, it's like, um, you could have easily said, uh, 
are we really going to reach out and try to make this happen? Nah, let's go get let's go get a hamburger. You know, it's, it's said you made it work. You know, and I I, I know a lot of people who would have stopped. I probably would have gone. Nah, <laughs> it's like that's <laughs> yeah, that's cool stuff. I love this. You know, it it and it's it's great. You know, we we I, I like what you're talking about there because being afraid of hard things. It's not you know sometimes that's the like you said that's where the learning takes place, man. Yeah, let's talk about another one. Why do you think that we need to invest more in our strongest students, not less? Yeah, it's. I mean, again, this is something that we seem to understand uh, in a lot of other other areas. Imagine aliens came to us and said, "In twenty years, we're going to be back, and we've got these humanoid creatures that are going to come here, and we're going to play one basketball game, one basketball game, and if you humans win, you beat us at basketball. All right, we're good. We're out of here. But if we win, we get the planet." what are we going to do for those 20 years, right? We're going to go out and we're going to find, you know, we're going to go in you know, 20 years. We're going to look at, okay, we're going to look at the eight and nine year olds now, maybe the 10 year olds, maybe the seven year olds. And we're going to find the ones that have great potential and great interest in playing ball. We're not just going to look at the tall kids. We're going to look at all of them because, you know, some of them are going to grow and some of them, some of them can really play even at six feet tall. Um, and we're going to find, we're going to invest more heavily in the ones who show the inclination, show the interest, show the ability, um, because they're the ones that are going to be most likely to help us beat those aliens 20 years down the road. Now, I don't think we're going to have aliens come visit us and say we're going to play basketball, but we are going to have problems 20 years down the road that we need really smart kids to solve, right? Because we got a ton of those problems right now. We have them right now. I mean, we're living through one right now. Like these, the, the people who developed um, the vaccines, what did they look like in, in high school and in grade school? Uh, I'll bet almost every single one of them, there were plenty of teachers that were like, that one right there. That one right there is one of the ones in this classroom that I would bet on if I had to you know, pick a team that was going to deal with a pandem pandemic 20 years from now. So I'm not saying we need to only invest in those kids, but we know that we have a set of problems that are facing society. You can pick whatever set that you care most about that is going to require uh, difficult problem solving going to require advanced science advances in you know all sorts of different areas in order to solve you know we need uh you know whether it's uh you know cheaper energy cheaper cleaner energy whether it's um you know different you know feeding larger and larger numbers of people we know what types of people we're going to need to solve those problems and we know where we're most likely to find them we're most likely to find them uh, when we're talking about our younger students we're most likely to find them in the kids who are most interested um, and, and show the strongest inclination and capabilities when they're kids. So we want to invest a lot in developing those talents to help everyone down the road. Um, the problem is our education system is not designed to do that. Our education, education in general, you have two big problems to solve um, for educating anybody. Um, one is broad literacy, and that's super important. We want everyone to be have a baseline level of literacy so like, this is a very broad problem because we want to hit everybody and we want to hit, we want them to have a baseline literacy in a lot of things, you know, not just math. We want them to be broadly literate in terms of reading. We want them to have a basic understanding of science, a basic understanding of history. So broad literacy, um, that's one. The other is mastery. And that is finding, um, we, ideally we find this in every single student, but it's going to be a different thing. And in in different students are going to uh, different different areas of study, different um, occupations are going to resonate with different people. And you want to be able to facilitate a high level of mastery in those students who will achieve it. I think a lot of students can achieve it. It's just going to be in different lanes. Um, but that second step there, the mastery, very little of our education system is structured this way. There are exceptional schools, there are exceptional students, there are exceptional teachers um, that do facilitate mastery. But for the most part, our educational system, all the incentives are set up around literacy. Again, very important goal. Wouldn't take that away to focus on mastery. I would add on uh, mastery. And mastery, you know, there, there are three important steps in mastery. First is the discovery, um, is uh, whether it's the, the, you know, the system, whatever that might be, or society or even a parent, um, discovering the interest in the student or the student discovering it in themselves. So that's one very important phase. Uh, the second is identity, is getting the students to uh, identify themselves as the, I am 
I'm a musician. I am a mathematician. I am a scientist. And obviously students can adopt multiple ones and can change over, over time. But there are in each of these disciplines, there are cultures, there are, I am this, I am interested in this thing. The student want, you want the student to own it. And then only third, do we get to the third part, which is training them. And that is where, where you get to take these kids and give them a different kind of training. And we do this with our musicians, right? You taught the band. Now there are probably plenty of other kids out there who, you know, played music, but maybe they weren't quite good enough to be in the band or they didn't have quite the passion to be in the band, but the school invested extra resources in those musicians in the band. They did it in the basketball team too. You know, I love basketball, but you, you can't see it on the screen, but I'm five, seven <laughs> and I am slow <laughs> and all, I couldn't shoot a basketball until I was 25. So I was not making the basketball team when I was in high school. Um, so but I wasn't upset that the, you know, the guys who could dunk and the guys who had skills and the guys who played way more than I did got to, and they ended the school day an hour early and got specialized training and playing basketball. I had no problem with that. I had a different teacher who was investing in me and my interests in mathematics. And that's the kind of thing that we want to see. We want to see more of. Very cool. Very cool. The, uh, we, we, one of the things I want to make sure that we talk about is, uh, is this get, can you talk about the lessons learned from teaching the world's brightest students online for 20 years? I mean, what'd you guys pull away from that? Uh, I mean, this is something the whole world, I think now has come to understand and having seen so many um, enormous companies built by people who were, you know, 23 when they started. But I think one of the things that's become, I mean, it's very apparent to us and we believed going in, but have had reinforced is uh, these kids are capable of really amazing things if they're given uh, the the resources, the opportunities, and the time to do so, and if they are given a community, if they are networked, if they're connected with each other, you know. So people will, will sometimes ask us how how we've been so successful in training all of these kids. You know, the U.S. has won the International Math Olympiad, I think, for the last six years after not winning the International Myth Math Olympiad for twenty years. Wow. Uh, you go back twenty years before that um, until you get to the last time they won. And that, that group of students they've taken, uh, you're talking about in those six years, you're talking about them, maybe 20 distinct students who have taken I don't know, 150, 200 courses with us. They were kind of the first generation of kids who grew up with our full curriculum available. We're not the only reason they got there. I want to be clear. There are a lot of camps that they were involved with there. Some of them are in very special schools, but the most important thing they had was each other. So through our online school, um, through the camps that they attended, uh, and maybe through, uh, you know, the handful of special schools or very special teachers who have built communities in their schools, they, once you network highly able, highly interested things, really amazing things happen. Like, you, you know, this is a historian, right? You can kind of look through uh, where different huge, where you'd have like one town have a huge impact on intellectual development in a period like you have in Scotland, you know, you had a, a group of people in one little town in, in the 1800s that, that like produced, uh, I'm going to misremember who all was there, but you know, like Adam Smith, David Hume, these, these types, they're all in one place. And had they been on, you know, separated by 30 years, they individually would probably not have been as successful as they were. They're separated by 2000 miles, 2000 miles, not a big deal anymore, but it was uh, way back then. And I think that has been a big part of what's happened that has empowered these students. The problem is it's not empowering. It's not accessible to all the students. So we have been able to take a slice of American students and really, um, really supercharge their educations. Um, but because it's not systemic, uh, it's, it's only available to the kids who know to find it, who know to look, who have parents or teachers that are that are um, networked enough or aware enough to look for these things. That's that's excellent. That's you know it's uh, it's fascinating when you, you think about uh, knowing a little bit about how how to, how to approach uh, getting kids to be able to to want to do and so forth. Just just awesome. I, good stuff. I, I, so let's talk about this. How, I mean, how can we solve the underrepresentation problem of Black and Latino students in the STEM fields? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big part of it is, is um, you know, getting back to what I was just talking about, that like we, uh, writ large, we are 
systemically, uh, let's say, I'll back up a minute. You can look at the kind of top ends of all the different fields, and it looks like America's doing just fine. You know, we, we've won the IMO for the last six years. What's, what's the problem here? Um, the problem here is that it's only a narrow set of students who are getting to participate in those things. We're getting the sort of preparation for those things. Let's call it 10% of the population. It might be smaller, but let's say 10. What happens if we open it up to the other 90? You know, we might be multiplying by 10 our capacity for innovation. That's, that's a huge, huge win. Why isn't it happening? One reason it's not happening is uh, the group of people who are, who are engaged in these activities, um, by and large, how are they getting there? They're getting there because they are connected to, uh, they're connected to communities that, uh, that know where to go, that know what to look for, that what this group of students has is most of them have parents who are scientists, who are engineers, who are mathematicians. Um, so those parents will culturally value and go seek those opportunities for their kids. So uh, um, a while ago, I mentioned that we want to discover, inspire, and train the students who have the capacity and interest for mastery. The first two steps are very, very important. They have to happen before the third step. We have to discover them. We have to inspire them. They have to discover things for themselves. They have to get inspired. They have to form an identity. Um, where does that discovery and inspiration happen? It happens inside communities. Uh, it happens inside schools. It happens inside families. If you take a student who does not have access to a community um, that is defined by um, by mathematical achievement, it is much harder for them to get through those dis discovery and inspiration steps and, in, and on to that third step, the training step. That's where the schools come in. And that's why we need to bring this kind of focus on mastery, this goal of mastery into the schools so that we can bring these discovery and inspiration steps into the schools and get them closer to the students. Because, you know, this is, this is how you build and find these people. You, you know, you, you, you build them out of communities that are focused on the, on the, whatever it is that you're trying to, whatever it is you're trying to produce. You know, if, if you were, if you were to try to find, um, you know, great symphony conductors, you're, you're not going to be building them out of small communities in, in Kansas. You know, that's not that there's not a culture there for those sorts of things. If you wanted to build, um, you know, uh, you can go on any, any sort of area where you're going to be building out masters. There are communities in the world where, that are uh, disproportionately represented in those things, whether it be athletics, music, or different ac academic fields. For the STEM discipline, I think really it's so important to, to, to find these innovators, these people who are going to build the future, that you want to make that culture accessible absolutely everywhere. You probably want to do it with these other spaces as well. But for our innovators, you definitely want to make it more accessible everywhere. And I think that is... Uh, the way we want to approach the underrepresentation problem, whatever dimension of underrepresentation you're trying to solve, uh, you know, it's not just uh, black and Latino students that you, you, we might want more people coming out of, you know, the whole world. We want to find more ways, more on ramps for for the kids. Very awesome, awesome stuff. The uh, yeah, it's you know, it, it it is amazing. Just as a note, I you know, when you when you put uh, kids together with you bring them together with people who are excited about the subject so that they can start having an interest, even if it builds over time. And I, right now I'm thinking about a, uh, an orchestra teacher who rebuilt an orchestra program in a school setting where we were trying to get it focused back on academics and uh, um, had to make a lot of changes because it had a violent culture and so forth. And we're trying to get that under control. And, and uh, you know, it's just interesting that uh, one of the things that happened in that environment where it, before it was not cool to have, uh, um, I was somebody who was brought in to, to change things at, at schools, right? And so I looked for people who had that understanding uh, of what it takes in their content area. And when you watch someone take a program that had 17 kids in a school of just under 2,000, um, where only 17 were interested in being an orchestra, to build it to, you know, 88 overnight, and they became competitive, and it and it all had to do with introducing to why the instruments are cool and engaging them in the thought and then watching the kids start working together. And next thing you know, as you saw cases being carried <laughs> um, where they weren't visible before and, you know, and it's it and where there might not be a case for a math, you know, for math, but there's a 
Um, I mean, that is a, like, you know, an instrument case, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're, they're carrying other things and gathering and Ruby doing different cube. stuff. The Ruby's cube is the first thing I was thinking of. Yes. And they're yeah. sitting there figuring it out. Or in the yeah. case of the really massive, um, calculators that could like, be programmed and do whatever. Um, but it's, you know, just, it, it's just such a different impact. And it's so cool because you see the impact that it has on others is, is where I'm going with that. I mean, I, you know, this, if, if you want to, really lose me just get me in the same place with a bunch of people who really like history and let's have uh and then and then start you know plant the seed to start talking about something that we get into and you know hey good stuff yeah yeah there, there's there's an area that i i i i love reading about history now uh, when i was in high school i did not appreciate <laughs> it at so all because it was taught as just a stream of facts to memorize yeah. and oh man when i read books now I, I probably read more history than anything else and I'm just like, wow, why did I not, why was I not taught this way, uh, given interesting books when I was younger? But like this, this building culture thing is, is super important. When I talk to great math team coaches and I ask them, how do you produce all these great students? And their answer is usually something along the lines of the strength of my team is the 20th student. You know, it's not the best students. It's, it's if they can build a culture where like the 15th through the 25th, if you were to rank them, I don't think they even think this way, but 15th through 25th students are super excited and engaged. Everything else is just going to work. Like those, those very top students are going to be inspired by their peers, right? It's, it's, it's the peers that they're going to feed, feed that energy. So that's the culture they want to build. And when they're walking into a school, like the one you're talking about where they don't have anything to begin with, uh, the first thing they'll they, they do is they'll talk about, well, at the beginning, we're not preparing for math competitions. We're building a culture. The first thing we do is we have a series of just kind of uh, game events, bring the kids together and they play set a card game. They play Settlers of Catan. Uh, uh, not a, they probably don't play that anymore. It's, that game's too old, but you know, games like this, games that geeks like, and that brings the kids together. It starts forming a culture. And then we start adding in, adding in the other, other sorts of things that we're going to do. And I'll bet this is the same thing you saw with your, your orchestra there. So he started maybe somewhere a little bit different, uh, your, 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 your leader, and then built that culture. And then the kids take over and, and then it's, then it's rolling. And, and as a note, that's exactly what he did. He started off by teaching them guitar because, yeah. you know, there's such a world of everybody wants to le learn guitar. Oh, I want to learn guitar. And then he yeah, broke. Meet, them, meet them where they are yep. and, and then, you know, kind of gradually show them a path to something even better. Yeah, it's pretty cool because that, that's neat that you said that because that's exactly what he did. And, you know, he came to me because I was the principal. He's like, could you just give me this much money? If you get me this much money, I can buy these cheap guitars and we'll go from there. And and oh, the magic of the guitar, man, that's what he did. He had that yeah. that process that you're just talking about. Very cool. Hey, you know, one of the things that I will make sure that uh, we finish up here because you really came close to talking about this earlier could you talk about how the future of online education will not be video only? <laughs> um, well, I mean, think of the, the future of online education is going to be um, fractured. Like they're, they're, the kids, like I said before, is going to be learning. They learn in very, very different ways. Um, so I, I think the, one of the powerful things about online education is that you can meet kids in a lot of different spaces. Now, I, you know, having running online schools and running various online resources, this is one thing I'm, I'm not supposed to say, which is online education isn't for everyone. It is, it is not a panacea. Anybody that tells you they've got the solution for everyone, you should not trust those people uh, because they probably don't. Um, but the one of one of the things that we've seen as we've started using video in more of our classes is uh, once you get past a certain age, the first thing the kids do, turn the cameras off. That is the first thing they do. Um, they might be happy to see other people. They are not happy with people seeing them. The younger kids, camera on. They're really happy. They're, they're, they're having a good time with everybody. But the, the older kids maybe don't want the camera on. But uh, there's another thing that we see with our one of our online schools is um, all the communication is text and images. Um, there are uh, many people for whom text is much more efficient. So like if I want to learn something, if somebody sends me a video, I'm, like, I'm not going to watch that unless it's something that I need to see to understand. You know, I, I once had a cat trapped in a tree and I went and found this video on building a cat elevator. I'm like, oh, if someone had described this to me, I'd be like, that's never going to work. <laughs> I see it once I'm like, oh, I know how to build that now. But for a lot of things, that's, you know, that's, that's a much slower way to learn. Um, so uh, kids can read people can read much faster than they can listen. Even more importantly, they can reread. 
listening, re-listening live really, really hard. You back up, now you're lost. Um, so in our online school, um, the classes are all text and images. So we can, uh, a kid can focus on one thing, the class can keep moving, and then the, cat, the, the kid can catch up. If the kid asks a question, kids can ask questions at any time, and a teacher can engage with the student asking a private question at the same time with managing the classroom. This is, again, this takes some time to get used to as a teacher, and it's hard to describe. Most people, when they hear it, are like, that sounds completely nuts, but then when you watch it, you see why it works. You see that all of the students can talk all the time, um, but the messages are all, they're all moderated. They're just coming to the instructor. The instructor can pick and choose which go into the main room. So I, as an instructor, uh, I view my classroom as I'm trying to tell a story. And I've got the things that the messages I want to get across, but I'm using what the kids are telling me as a way to kind of drive the plot and drive, drive the steps along. So that's just, that's just one way. There are a lot of obviously other things that you can do with, with online education, but we see it now with, with uh, the way students use their phones, right? They, they don't use their phones to call each other. They may send cute videos to their friends. Mostly they text, right? They're, they're typing messages to each other. Part of it there is the, the communication is not quite asynchronous and it's not quite synchronous. And there's a power in that. There's a real power in being able to be like, okay, I'm doing this thing, then I'm going to do this thing, then I'm going to come back and do that, or I'm going to hand this thing to you and let you think about it for a while. I'm going to take care of this. If it's synchronous, there's this expectation of immediate response. When it's, mm, let's say, plausibly live, but not quite live, then I can kind of sit back for a minute, reflect, and give a better answer. And that's another strength of having a communication mechanism that is close to live, but not quite live, is that there's not that expectation of immediate response. So there's a little patience there that gives the respondent a moment to reflect, to start to put out an answer and be like, oh, no, 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 that's not gonna work. Let's back that up. Let's try this instead. And I think that is uh, you know, something great teachers can do on the fly in 0.3 seconds. Most people aren't that good. I'm certainly <laughs> not that good. So I like to like, one nice thing about that sort of, um, even this answer right here, I could have made much shorter and much more effective if I'd written it out first, cut out the 150 words I shouldn't didn't need to say, and just giving you the concise answer. So maybe that long-winded answer gives an example of how eh, plausibly live, slightly asynchronous um, can lead to better outcomes. Uh, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. And it wouldn't have been the same without all that stuff in there. So. <laughs> So good. That's that's awesome. Richard, we're, we're getting close to finishing up. And before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where would you send them? So our, our flagship website that's been around for almost 20 years is AOPS.com. That'll point you to our art of problem solving, our, our kind of original site. But we also have BeastAcademy.com for the elementary schools and then AOPSAcademy.org. And that'll get to the, the learning centers and now our new virtual campus. Excellent. Excellent. I'll have that in the show notes. So it's easy to find. And uh, last two questions are questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Oh, oh that's that's really hard. Um, I mean, there, there if I went back 10 years, I would say a lot of it is just just looking at the students and seeing how much the students value what we're doing. And having a, having a space, having each other, and, and having a space where um, they they get to be their fullest selves, they get to start to realize their potential. I'd say in the last ten years, some of that has shifted more to the people who are in the company. Um, as the company has grown, I've gotten to work with the students less, and I work with the people in the company more. And seeing them uh, grow and and start to find new capabilities in themselves, new interests, and get to really, really uh, develop deep expertise in areas that they really enjoy. I think those are areas where that get me most motivated is, is seeing really amazing people um, starting to realize that they have greater potential than maybe they already realized and starting to travel down that path. Uh, that I think is the, has been the most motivating factor for me. Very cool. Yeah. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? 
Oh yeah, I mean, the, 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 I have I have three, but the first two are cheating. So <laughs> the first two are my parents. Nice, you know, first grade teacher and my dad a nuclear engineer. You know, I, I like to, to joke that my mom my mom taught me my numbers and my dad taught me what to do with them. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was my mom's first uh, first student because she was twenty two when she had me, so she was raising me for a while before she went into the classroom. So I was I was uh, patient zero for her. Nice. Um, but the the teacher I had a I had a lot of a lot of great teachers in, you know, throughout my schooling, the one who probably invested the most in me or certainly invested the most in me was uh, Gwen Snotty. And she was um, the high school math coach. And she, she would bring the math team uh, all over the Southeast. Um, She would bring events to the school. And then she would also travel all over the Southeast to various competitions. I was in high school in Alabama. So we'd go to Tennessee, we'd go to Georgia, go to Florida um, to various events. So this was giving up a lot of weekends and the number just went up and up and up as she saw how much interest I had. Like the math team did things before me, but she invested a lot more once I was there. And I was like, I really want to do this thing. I want to do this thing. And she's like, great, we'll do those two. And here's three more. Um, so I think that, that I, I think the main thing I would want to acknowledge to her now is to realize how few students had access to what I had in her, a, a teacher who was willing to invest that much time and that much effort to make all of those opportunities for me. Given what I do now, I realize that very, very few teachers uh, do that for their students. So um, that would be the, the main thing is just an appreciation. I didn't appreciate it then, didn't say thank you enough, but I would definitely and uh, definitely reach out to her and uh, say thank you now. That's awesome. That's that's so awesome when you have a, that, that person you're uh, that, that teacher who made that type of difference, good stuff. And like you said, I mean, having your parents to, to be there, that's good. That's not cheating. That's uh, <laughs> that's great <laughs> stuff, man. Uh, yeah, Richard, thanks so much for talking with me today. Love the focus of the art of problem solving. So much to learn. And what an amazing company you've built. I uh, wish you the best in all you do. All right. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.